0: October marks the 8th anniversary of the Permaculture Podcast. With that comes updated benefits for Patreon subscribers, including five giveaways next month, two live calls, a monthly AMA, weekly updates, and much more. Go to patreon.com permaculturepodcast to see the support tiers and sign up today. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Today, guest host David Bilbury sits down with Hunter Lovins, to talk about natural capitalism solutions, and Hunter's new book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. During their conversation, David and Hunter talk about the problems facing humanity, from climate change to economic policies, and how we got into this mess. She then shares solutions we can take, right now, to make a difference. Those ideas range from creating new habits, to self-directed ongoing education, and direct action. Enjoy this conversation, and I'll join you again afterward.
1: Hi, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com and the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm here today with Hunter Lovins, who I met at Regen18. So Hunter, welcome.
2: Thank you. Honored to be with
1: you. I really enjoyed uh, what you shared at Regen18 and some of the stuff I've studied about you since then, and so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. One of the things, I'd like to read a short quote from Buckminster Fuller, because he seemed to come up a lot over that weekend, and it just kind of highlights what we're kind of all about, and that is... How do we make the world work for 100% of humanity? It kind of sums up the regenerative movement in one short little phrase and uh, and also seems to be a lot about what you've been addressing with your, with your life's work as well. Secondly, is a Thomas Berry quote that I found uh, that you quoted, and it is, we are in trouble now because we do not have a good story. We need a new story that will educate men, heal him, and guide him. With that, I'd like to start with just talking a little bit about you and your early sort of life and origins and how you came to this work.
2: Well, I don't know that that's all that interesting, but uh, in some ways, uh, when people ask that, I say, I'm not sure I had a lot of choice. My mother worked in the coal fields with John L. Lewis, organizing mine workers. My dad helped mentor Cesar Chavez and Martin King. They were around the house when I was growing up. So Mm. I guess I'm in the family business.
1: Right. Wow. So so what was that like, having Cesar Chavez in the house?
2: At the time, wholly unremarkable. I remember my mother coming home one day and saying, we're not eating grapes anymore. Said, Why? Cesar's boycotting them. Oh, to this day, I still have a hard time eating a grape. I actually met him shortly, met him again shortly before he died and said, I'm, uh, I'm Paul Sheldon's daughter. He said, I know who you are. He was still just a lovely, gentle, wise, brilliant man.
1: So that was from like, like pre-teenage that he was around?
2: Uh, that would have been teenage.
1: So then you, you get through high school, you're going to college. What are you studying?
2: In the 50s, I worked in fair housing. In the 60s, I worked in civil rights and then anti-Vietnam War. Then planted a tree for the first Earth Day and pivoted into environmental work took a double degree in political studies and sociology with an emphasis on the environment, went to law school because uh, growing up, people would always say, and what are you going to be when you grow up, little girl? And I would say, I'm going to be a lawyer. I go, oh, I didn't have to do a darn thing, but it was very impressive. About to graduate college, it occurred to me if I didn't go to law school, I was going to have to figure out what I was going to do. So a group of us went to law school we all took the law boards at the same time got about the same score. There was one school I wanted to go to because it had at the time a good environmental program and so just applied there got in. My first year ran into a couple guys who said you know this is the end of your academic career it really doesn't matter what grade you get all you need is the minimum grade to stay in school so don't make yourself crazy. And I so, said, well, that, that sounds sensible. So uh, was not a particularly impressive student in terms of grades my first year. Second year, I could take classes I wanted, got straight A's. The dean said, why didn't you do that the first year? You'd have gotten on law review. I said, I didn't want to be on law review. And to me, law was a tool. I loved the study of the law. Again, because with no screaming pressure on. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating subject. And I was going to use law to enhance social good, environmental good. Got out, took the bar, practiced for a couple of years, and then uh, realized law is actually a lousy tool. I mean, thank God for the good environmental lawyers out there, but they are... By and large, operating on the margins within the system that is given to them. And again, thank God for them. They're saving a lot from being a lot worse, but it isn't going to fundamentally change the system. And so I joined a group of folk who were planting smog tolerant trees in the mountains behind Los Angeles as a way of starting a conversation about smog, which seemed to me to be a symptom of the misuse, misunderstanding, misallocation of energy. So in about 1972, I started teaching myself energy policy. Back then, it wasn't a polite subject. Unless you worked for a utility or an oil company, it never came up. 1973, the Arab oil embargo happened. Everybody was talking about it. But nobody had an internally consistent approach to it. In 76, I tracked into Amory Lovins paper in Foreign Affairs, Energy Strategy, The Road Not Taken, read it because a fellow I admired much said, this is what you've been looking for. I had to read it with a dictionary and a ruler going line by line trying to figure out what the hell he was saying. When I figured it out, it actually wasn't all that complicated. He was saying, what is the amount and type and source of energy we need to do each job? Let's look at this from first principles and at the margin. So if you're going to build something new, not what does it cost to run an existing plant, what's the cheapest option? And it turns out, he said, it's efficiency and then renewables. And if you do this right, you don't need any oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear plants. You can do it all with renewables. Well, if we'd done it back then, or e- even before in the 50s when the Paley Commission said much the same thing, we would now have a completely renewable energy system, would not be battling climate change, would not be have our foreign policy warped by dependence on the Middle East. A lot of things in the world would be different. But at the time, what Amory wrote was heresy, And a lot of people were attacking him. It seemed to me that ordinary people ought to understand what he was saying. So I translated it into English and was teaching it to the third graders and the senior citizens that we were working with. And the chief economist of Atlantic Richfield, who uh, was working with our little outfit, said, Oh, I know that guy. I'll introduce you. That turned out, (laughs) depending on your opinion, to be a good thing or a bad thing. Amory and I teamed up, worked together for about 20 years. Founded Rocky Mountain Institute and did some good work for a while. We parted ways in 1989. Uh, I left RMI in 2002, created natural capitalism, and here we are.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit of your trajectory. So, can we talk for a few minutes about uh, where we are, sort of as a, a nation and a global system, and how we got here?
2: We're in trouble. I'm in the process of just putting the finishing touches on a new book called A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. And the first chapter that I set out to write was, uh, no kidding, folks, we're in trouble. Nobody could read it. As they walked through the litany of all of the challenges facing us, they just threw up their hands and said, we quit. And I realized that's much the way a lot of people feel. We, We know we're in trouble. And we just don't want to look it in the face because it is too daunting. So I rewrote the chapter. It's 2050. We've made it. We've avoided collapse. We've solved the worst of the crises facing us. And in each instance, talking about what, how life is then, citing things that are actually happening today, people said, this is great. We can read this. And in the chapter, I said, remember how it was back in 2017 and 2018? So I got all the bad news in, but I got it in in a way of, we can solve these problems. But the problems are daunting. Climate change is an existential threat. It will end life as we know it, left untackled. Left untackled, it will cost our economy something like $30 trillion dollars. It's already wreaking havoc, everything from the still tens of thousands of people in Puerto Rico, American citizens without power, without water, from the hurricane. We're going to have more and more violent storms. The droughts in the Middle East are worsening ethnic tensions, civil wars. So we now have 67 million refugees trying to leave North Africa, the Middle East. Scientists say by 2040, the Middle East will be too hot to be inhabitable. Where are they going to go? So they all want to go to Germany. That almost sank the German government just because they took one million of them. And so now you have political crises across the Eurozone, whether it be Brexit or the Hungarians, the Austrians voting in right-wing dictatorial governments the italians voting in a right-wing government the economic collapse in greece you can just go on compounding how bad it is don't do this because it'll put you in a very bad mood but you can google near-term human extinction and find what purports to be science arguing that humans go extinct within the next decade or so Now, I think this is the most profoundly irresponsible position that you can take. There's a group in the UK called Dark Mountain that says, get over it, grieve, do whatever it takes, but then get over it and party on because time is short and that's all you get. We're going down. When rabbits are confronted with a threat, they freeze. When humans are confronted with a threat, we organize, we entrepreneur, we create Solutions, we create new ways of doing things. We're not rabbits. Let's go. Let's organize. And we know now that we have all the technologies we need to solve the worst of the problems facing us and buy the time we need to solve the rest. So that's what the rest of the book is about. How did we get into this mess? And that turns out to be a fairly simple story. The economic system that is driving the world to ruin was created by 36 men, and they were all men, who gathered at a hotel outside Montreux, Switzerland, called Mont in 1947. Now in 47, Europe's in ruins, so Ludwig von Mises is appalled at what National Socialism has done to trash Europe. Frederick Hayek is scared to death of the rise in the east of Soviet collectivism. And Milton Friedman believes that the individual is the only legitimate economic actor. They and 33 of their closest friends argued for 10 days and built the ideology that is now called neoliberalism. George Monbiot has a pretty good piece in The Guardian a year or so back describing neoliberalism, the ideology you've never heard of that's ruining your life. And it's based on some beliefs several of which are just factually wrong, such as humans are essentially greedy bastards. They picked a particularly nasty version of social Darwinism that said it's the survival of the fittest, by which they meant meanest, nastiest, greediest bastards. And they blended that with a strain of Calvinism that, If you're rich, it's a sign that you're blessed by God. If you're poor, God obviously doesn't like you. Government, they said, has only one role, which is to preserve the sanctity of the free market, which they said is perfect. And therefore, government should have militaries to protect us from other greedy people who will come and attack us and enshrine the sanctity of private contracting and then get out of the way. The free market will do the rest. They organized, they got their members as advisors to every head of state on the planet, three of them as heads of state. Friedman took over the Chicago School of Economics, and they spread this economic ideology around the world. So if you've had an economics class, this stuff is in your head. They remained, however, a fairly wonkish group Until in 1971, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, in the wake of the 60s, sex, drugs, rock and roll, said business has been delegitimized. What can we do to repair the damage that people feel about business? Powell wrote a memorandum, and it's worth going on the web and downloading the Powell memorandum. He laid out 26 targets. He said business must realize that it has to wield power aggressively and in a well-funded way. So they said target things like high school textbooks, schools of business, lower court judges, school districts. And if you look at what has been happening in the last decade or so, <laughs> they're, they're right on track. On the strength of the Powell Memorandum, five foundations, I think Olin, Coors, Scaife, Bradley, the Koch brothers, each put $5 million for each of five years into creating and endowing some institutions to take the wonkish ideology of neoliberalism and refine it, massage it, message it, and roll it out. So they created Heritage Foundation first, then ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council, Hudson, Hoover, Heartland, Cato, American Enterprise. These guys are all still there. Fast forward to a year or so back when our child in chief, deer in the Headlights, walks into the Oval Office. He is handed a playbook written by the Heritage Foundation. Here's what you do for your first 100 days. Here's who you appoint. Here's what your policy agenda is. He hit the ground running in a way that progressives never do because our side figures, "Oh, if we can just find some charismatic leader. Oh, Obama. Oh, this will be lovely. The world will be right." And then we start making it up. We have no narrative to counter the neoliberal narrative of "we're all greedy bastards, the market's perfect, and government should get out of the way." If you say to somebody, what would a world be that worked for 100% of humanity? You go, uh, or you get crickets. We haven't done the hard work of sitting down and saying, how do we get to that world? What does it look like? What does it taste like? Do we want to live in it? We're very good at putting forth apocalyptic movies of how bad it can be. Everything from Blade Runner to the other... Dystopic movies. But what would it, realistically, what would a community look like if it worked? And it worked for everybody. We have no idea, and we have no idea how to get there. So that's what we set out to do in this book, A Finer Future Creating an Economy in Service to Life. It'll hit bookstores, I think, 25th of September, and then my life will be going down the road, flogging the book.
1: You've got your work cut out for you for the foreseeable future here, it sounds like.
2: For the next year or so, yes.
1: So what is the antidote? What is the inoculation, <laughs> the, the social and uh, uh, mental and emotional and spiritual inoculation to uh, cure this sort of disease on humanity at the moment?
2: Dot, do one thing. If you look at all of the problems facing us, they are too overwhelming. You don't know where to start. So start somewhere. Start local. Start with something that you can do in your life every day and just do one thing and you will be making a difference. Will it be enough? Of course not. But if you and all of your family and friends and colleagues and community members all Make this commitment to do one thing and then begin doing it together and then begin talking about it and talking about what do we want our community to be like? what is it about our community that we have that we love? what is it about it that we might want to change and pull together a community group that is oriented to building the kind of community you want to live in and perhaps it's um, working in fair housing, perhaps it's working in civil rights, perhaps it's working in the environment. These are all important aspects of beginning to build change. Maybe it's early childhood education. Whatever it is that you are passionate about, do one thing. Now, what we're doing at Natural Capitalism and with a team of people from around the world is trying to replicate what the neolibs did at Pelerin. So over the past couple of years, we've had a series of meetings where we've pulled people together to start trying to frame this new narrative of shared prosperity on a healthy planet as an antidote to the neoliberal, we're all greedy bastards and the market's perfect. We're still in the wonkish stage, so we're working with some marketers, and of course we have no money. Uh, so we're bootstrapping all of this out of our various organizations. About a year ago, we realized all these disparate organizations are great and we need to be communicating with each other and we need to be pulling together. So we created a group called We All, Wellbeing Economy Alliance, that is headquartered at the moment out of the UK. It'll be meeting in a couple of weeks in Spain it includes groups like Wellbeing Economy Africa, Sustainability out of Latin America, Nesi, New Economy Social Innovation from Spain, and groups from all over Europe, groups in this country like the TELUS Institute, uh, Next System. We're pulling together as many of the new economy groups as we can find to build ultimately a global citizens movement to Call for the sort of changes that we can identify are necessary to do things like uh, roll climate change backward and ensure that all people have adequate renewable energy healthy food livable communities the core ingredients of what makes life a high quality life so watch this space we will uh, will be announcing We All at a big event in New York in September, which uh, just happens to coincide with when the book's coming out. The book was co-authored by Stuart Wallace, who is the chair of We All, Anders Wiegmann, who is the co-chair of the Club of Rome, and John Fullerton, who put forth the concept of regenerative economics. So uh, if, if we're at all successful, we will build a web-based platform that enables a global citizen's conversation around all of these issues. And we'd love all of you to join.
1: That sounds amazing. I, I'm excited after that uh, setup of where we are and how we got there and me asking the antidote that you've, you've got a well-worked out antidote already in progress. Thank you. <laughs> That's very encouraging. So you've spent a lot of time in education as well. You've crafted several um, graduate level programs and taught in many of them. So for those of us who aren't in a position in life to get an MBA, how would you point us as far as educating ourselves, books, courses, YouTube (laughs) videos, whatever, Uh, what would be the the, sort of the pillars of re-educating ourselves into this sort of regenerative mindset?
2: Figure out what it is that you really care about. My, friend, the folk singer, Kate Wolf said, find what you really care about and live a life that shows it. So just take a little time and think about what matters to you. Coral reefs, rainforests, panda bears, or people, kids, old people, people of color. And it doesn't matter which piece of this larger system you pick. They ultimately all tie together. That's the, the wisdom of systems thinking. And then go online, start Googling around the topic that you've found, and every day educate yourself a little bit more about the topic that you care about. Take a committed amount of time, take an hour, two hours, whatever you have, 15 minutes if that's all you have. Load this stuff onto an iPad, watch it while you're in transit if you're not driving. And every day just educate yourself a little bit more. Let me give you a couple of videos that I think are particularly important. Two are by a man named Tony Seba. Tony's a Stanford prof who says inevitably by 2030, the world will be 100% renewably powered. Now, if Tony's right, we're going to solve the climate crisis by 2030. Well, we're going to solve half of it. Tony says this is inevitable because of four things, fall in the cost of solar, fall in the cost of storage, batteries, the electric car, the driverless car, and then the business model of transit as a service. He said these autonomous electric cars powered by solar will take you where you want to go tenfold cheaper, ten times cheaper than what you pay today to own, maintain, fuel, insure a private vehicle. At a tenfold drop in price, he says, everybody's going to go in this direction and it's all over but the shouting. Now, if Tony's right, and I think there's a good argument that he may well be, We are looking at the dissolution in value of the oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, utility industry, auto industry, the banks that hold paper in them, the insurance companies and pension funds that are invested in them. This will be the mother of all disruptions coming at us within 10 years' time, and we have no earthly idea what to do about it. So start thinking in your own community, if the economy is going to get very shaky And there are a number of things that could make the economy shaky, from uh, the trade war that we seem intent on getting into, to the fact that uh, we've just released the big banks from the puny restrictions we put on them after 2008, and they may well go and collapse the economy all by themselves, to uh, what Tony is saying. What do you need in your community to survive? Where does your food come from? Where does your water come from? Where does your energy come from? Housing, healthcare, sanitation. What can you begin to do in your own community to enhance the resilience of the systems that you depend upon? And just start this conversation with your neighbors. There are a lot of resources around how to do this. You can come on the Natural Capitalism website. We have a tool called LASER, Local Action for Sustainable Economic Renewal. There's a group out of the UK called Transition Towns that has its own approach to building sustainable, locally-based economies. There are all sorts of resources out there that you can get on the internet to help you begin these conversations in your community. But I would suggest you begin them, because things things may be fixing to get a mite Western.
1: A mite Western as in, like, Bonanza?
2: As in like a horse that's about to buck underneath you. Uh, I used to ride rodeo. (laughs) Every now and again, a horse decides it'd rather you be sitting on the ground than on top of it. And then things get a little Western. The other video is by a guy named Gabe Brown. It's called Keys to Building a Healthy Soil. And Gabe's a North Dakota, was corn, soybean, commodity farmer who was going broke. So he said, I've got to do something to start cutting my costs. He implemented no-till. Then he started planting cover crops. Then he added animals, cattle, to eat the cover crops. Based on the work of a man named Alan Savory, who has put forth an approach called holistic management, holistic planned grazing. Gabe is now wildly profitable, producing a variety of crops, not just corn and soybeans, though he still does that. And he has started increasing the soil carbon. Now, this matters because in addition to Tony Seba's work of transitioning to renewable energy, we need to suck carbon out of the air and put it back into the soil where it started out before we dug up fossil fuels and burned them. When the first pioneers came across the Great Plains, they found 10 feet of thick black soil. That black was carbon. It got there because of the coevolution of grazing animals and grasslands. As animals eat grass, the roots slough polysaccharides, sugars, that feeds the biological community in the soil. It's the microbes, particularly the mycorrhizal fungi, that mineralize the carbon from the sugars, from decaying plant matter, from manure from the animals. Now, prehistorically, great grazing herds were dense packed because of predators. If you're a bison and a wolf is after you, the safe place to be is in the middle of the herds. Everybody's trying to get there. So the herd eats what it can, moves on. Meanwhile, its hooves have chopped up the soil. It's fertilized the soil. It doesn't come back to that spot until the grass has regrown. It just keeps moving. Today, we can do that with electric fences, opening and closing water holes. And where ranchers are starting to do this, they're finding that they can put immense amounts of carbon from the air back into the soil. There are some calculations that if we did this practice on all of the world's grasslands, now that's a big if, Over 30 years' time, we would get back to 280 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, which is the pre-industrial level. We're now at 411 and growing rapidly. At that rate, this is more carbon in the atmosphere than humans have ever lived with. The last time the world had this concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, there were crocodiles in Greenland and palm trees, and we're heating the earth leading to the mass migrations, etc. So we know how to roll climate change backward, and you can watch how Gabe did this in this video, Keys to Building a Healthy Soil, which is on YouTube. The Tony Seba videos, if you Google SEBA, S-E-B-A, and then C-R-E-S, which is Colorado Renewable Energy Society, you'll get one of the videos. Then Google SEBA world affairs. And you'll get a second video shot a month or so ago, where Tony really walked through what's happened in the year since he did the first video. And it's, it's pretty staggering.
1: I've interviewed some folks in the past that are involved with uh, holistic management and and Savory. So uh, how long have you been doing uh, those practices on your land?
2: Well, I started working with Alan back in the late 80s when I had about a 1,000 acres of ground that I was stewarding up uh, in the Rocky Mountains. And we took ground that had been abandoned for 20 years, had been overgrown with noxious weeds, eroded, and in two years' time, turned it back into a paradise. I do it on my own ground now, and we took ground that we're dry land, this year, we have chest-high grass, dry land ranching. It, it seems almost miraculous. And you can go on the Savory Institute website and see photographs of where ground is being managed holistically and right across the fence line, it's being managed conventionally and it's desert. So again, we we, we have the technologies, we know what to do. Now it's a question of getting about organizing. What can you do to help figure out where your beef comes from? Buy only grass-fed beef. That's a first step. And then seek out the ranchers who are practicing holistic management. Now, Savory Institute is moving to create a system whereby all holistically managed beef, chicken, lamb all of the various foods that ranchers are produ- farmers and ranchers are producing can be badged as regenerative using a, an approach they call ecological outcome verification, where practitioners can take their ground, do a baseline measurement, then show year on year that it is increasing soil carbon, increasing water retention, biodiversity, They're working with a lot of big brands who want to be buying regenerative products who will continue this badge all the way up the system so that then you, the customer, can know that you're buying a piece of a climate solution.
1: I have a question for you, sort of a devil's advocate question. For the conventional folks, they might ask, well, can you grow enough beef to, to meet the demand?
2: Well, short answer, yes. If we started practicing holistic management on all of the world's grasslands, there could be plenty of animal protein to feed people. And you couple it with the work of, say, the Rodale Institute on organic vegetable production, compost based vegetable production, which rolls climate change backwards as well. And you might eat a little less beef. But you would be eating vastly tastier beef. We yesterday got the delivery of packaged meat from the latest steer we just had butchered. So we had hamburgers last night and everybody was sitting around going, wow, this is great. Holistically managed, grass-fed beef. It's just tastier.
1: That's one of the pieces I think is key and I've heard you talk about is if you address business, then that kind of leads to transforming all of these other connected systems, social and economic. And so the marketing message needs to be start gearing towards nutrient density and all of these things that are benefits of, of this type of um, of this you know, type of beef so that the public knows the differences between grass fed. It's not that it's just a little better for the earth or a lot better, but it's a lot better for human beings and goes a long way towards solving the healthcare crisis.
2: We uh, got into this particular set of cattle because the daughter of some friends of ours has uh, Crohn's disease. And they said, she can now only eat grass-fed beef, according to the doc. And we said, well, we've got ground. Why don't we start putting up some animals? So uh, we did. And her father brought over the uh, the lot of packaged beef. He uh, took the steer and took it to the abattoir, had it put up and then brought us our share of the beef. And we were eating hamburgers, they were eating steak, but they're doing it purely for the health benefits.
1: So what is in that beef that helps her particular condition?
2: Grass-fed beef has higher quantities of conjugated linoleic acid. It's higher in omega-3 than fish, when you start feeding corn to beef, you turn the healthy omega-3 oils into omega-6, which is unhealthy. Most beef you buy in a supermarket has been corn finished. Most of the corn that is grown with enormous inputs of water, chemicals, mechanical energy, is grown to feed animals. The animals don't need it. Cows were never designed to eat corn. They're designed to eat grass. And it takes a little longer to get an animal to what's considered finished weight, doing it grass-fed. But in our case, we don't, we don't really care when we harvest the animal. It's more we, we want the tasty beef. And in her case, she wants the healthy beef. Now, you do a lot of other things in your diet. You, you cut out processed sugar, you cut out junk food, you start growing your own vegetables or buying them at a farmer's market, knowing where your food came from, knowing the face of the person who grew your food, and being able to have the conversation with them about how are their economics going? Are they making enough to survive? Helping young people get into agriculture in a way that is satisfying to them, that builds a quality of life for them, We're on the verge of an agricultural crisis. Average age of farmers is in the mid to high 60s. We're going to need to transform how we do farming at the same time we transform how we do energy, how we do transportation, how we organize ourselves economically, how we run our politics. And we've allowed our politics to become taken over by media, by foreign countries by special interests, politics ought to be a contact sport in which you're in there with your city council person, county commissioner, state representative, congressperson. You know their name. They know your name. You're a participant. Very few people do that anymore. And if we do do it, then we're in a position where we can have a say in the kind of future that we want to
1: build. I think that the problem historically there in the last couple of decades has been the same as the problem with that group in Europe you mentioned that are said it's the end of the world we can't stop it so let's just party people don't believe they can change anything in the political system because it's become so overrun with corporations and lobbyists and all of that but uh, it's a recurring theme recently here and especially amongst some people at uh, Region 18 especially Joel Solomon uh, addressed this issue so I'm with you and. There is a huge influx of new people running for Congress and Senate and stuff here in this upcoming election. And I think there is going to be a big changeover of people and hopefully many people that are not uh, haven't previously been in politics. So that's that's hopeful.
2: My colleague, Andrew Winston, who wrote the great book, The Big Pivot, he's been a consultant to businesses whining about politics. And after the 2016 election, he said, that's it, I'm getting into politics. And so he ran for his city council and got elected. And he said, it is eye-opening the extent to which citizens feel disempowered, but they're not. You can run for office, you can get elected, I've done it, I don't happen to like politics, but... More power to the people who do. We need good people running for these offices. And when you find somebody good who's running, support them. Walk up to them, shake their hand, look them in the eye, and say, I want to help. And then go knock on doors, talk to your neighbors, help get them elected. They will remember you. And then continue to go and see them. There's something like 28 lobbyists for every congressperson. You better believe they're in their offices telling them what they want. Are you? And if you're not, then you almost have no cause to complain. Congress people come home to their district where they have an office. You can make an appointment, walk in, talk to your congressperson. At a minimum, you can talk to their staffers. Go tell them what you care about. Write them a letter. Take out a little card, piece of paper, pen, and write to them. Trust me, they count handwritten letters. They don't so much count when you click on an Internet site of, here, write your congressperson. But if you handwrite a letter, they, uh, they take that very seriously. And they work on an iceberg theory. If one person took the time to do this, there are probably at least 10 others out there who feel that way.
1: Isn't that interesting? In the, the modern era of the Internet, uh, it's, be- <laughs> it's created a, a, a new poignancy for handwritten letters.
2: It has indeed. It, it, it is a lost art, but a very important one. And then another thing that you personally can do, where's your money? Is it in a locally owned bank or is it a, a bank owned by a distant corporation in another state? Move your money to a local bank, to a credit union. A group of us uh, a year or so back created a little company called Change Finance, to do just that, to change finance. We rang the bell on Wall Street last November on behalf of what's called an exchange traded fund. This particular one is fossil fuel free. It's a basket of a hundred large capitalized American companies, big blue chip companies, that don't trade in carbon. And for the price of a pizza, you can own one of these. Stocks, one of these uh, pieces of the ETF, it's called CHGX. And if you have money in investments and you don't know what you're invested in, you own climate change, you own industrial agriculture, you own the big companies that are doing all the things that you say you don't like. So take a look at your portfolio, talk to your stock advisor, and if they don't like the idea of investing in something like our little company, open a Robinhood account and invest in it yourself. We were in a cab going to a conference talking about our little ETF, and the cab driver said, what are you talking about? We told him. He said, how do I do this? We said, open a Robinhood account, Robinhood.com on the internet. And as he was letting us out, he was on his phone opening it up. He said, this is great. I want to be a part of this. So. That's another thing that each one of us can do.
1: That's really helpful. And what is like what's a minimum investment? Can you literally invest as little as the cost of a pizza, or are we talking about, you know, a couple thousand dollars or
2: as little as the cost of a pizza. I don't know what it's trading at today, but it's somewhere around nineteen bucks.
1: So you could just put just put a little bit of money in every month.
2: You could buy one. You could buy two or five or however many you have appetite for. And now you know that that little piece of your money is invested in companies that not only are fossil fuel free, but are screened to be the highest quality on environment, social and good governance. We believe that based on all of the studies, places like Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley, that socially responsible investing will outperform the general market. Because these are better managed companies. I mean, it makes sense.
1: Well, we're already seeing a trend that way in the last several years.
2: We are. There are trillions of dollars now flowing into SRI investing, socially responsible investing. And again, over the last couple decades, it has been outperforming. Now, again, any particular stock, you do your due diligence. Stocks go up, they go down. Markets go up, they go down. But in general the sri funds have been outperforming
1: well that's that kind of dovetails with the idea of where is your consumer dollar going so buying products that are sustainably you know created and managed and so that that's step 1 step 2 you can actually put your savings into towards those and follow that trend as it climbs because having your money in the traditional stock market right now i don't think is going to do as well as it did the last 50 years but something like this
2: if we're looking at this enormous economic dislocation, you do not want your money in fossil fuel stocks.
1: Seriously, that's, a, that's incredible. And the numbers on how much money are in fossil fuels, what do those numbers look like?
2: I advise a little, uh, what's called a family office. This is a family that has money that they invest. They used to be in extractive industries, oil, gas, mining. They have gotten out entirely. So this is no longer a good investment. We're going into clean energy.
1: So back to education for a moment. Um, You've been involved in creating several MBA-type programs. What are some of the pillars of, of those programs that you put together?
2: I teach at the Bard MBA. This is what's called a hybrid program. So we meet once a month for four days, intensively. And then the rest of the time, you can be off about whatever you're doing, your job, your life. We then meet online Tuesday, Thursday evenings. In two years, you come out with an MBA. What's different about it is that sustainability, regenerative economics is baked into every class. So you learn all of the business disciplines, accounting, finance, marketing, economics, but you learn it from the standpoint of what we think is just a better way to do business, behaving responsibly to people and to planet, recognizing that the companies that are behaving responsibly have lower costs, are better able to attract and retain the best talent, have lower risk better manage their brands, reduce the cost of distrust. You know, when Walmart announced its sustainability scorecard, they cut in half the number of people saying, I will never shop at a Walmart. Then one of their stupid managers did this thing with the box where associates could donate so that poor associates could afford a Thanksgiving, and they they wiped out the gains they had made through their environmental program. They, They haven't quite got it on the social side yet, And sustainability is both about the environment and about how we treat people. And at the Bard MBA, we talk about all of these sorts of issues. And so I have students doing projects in regenerative agriculture, in community organizing, in affordable housing. Uh, One young man is trying to do hempcrete houses in West Virginia, trying to launch a, a hemp industry in West Virginia. One of our students uh, just ran for Congress and won her primary, so uh, with any luck, uh, Jess King in Pennsylvania will be headed off to Congress in November.
1: Fantastic. So as far as getting started, and what are some of the absolute sort of key books that people should read as a foundation?
2: Well, I hope they will read my new book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life, coming out in September. There's a paper by John Fullerton, Regenerative Capitalism, that you can get online through Capital Institute. Any of Bucky's books, Operating Instructions for Spaceship Earth, is a good one. Brilliant book out last year from a gal who worked with Oxfam in the u k called Donut Economics. gal named Kate Rayworth, book by Freya Williams called Green Giants: Profiling how the companies that have Green baked in are the next billionaires. Next billion dollar brands. Andrew Winston's Big Pivot. <laughs> There's no shortage of great books to be reading.
1: Kate Raworth uh, was one of the speakers on a program that Otto Scharmer is doing called Transforming Capitalism. And, and I can put a link to that in the show notes as well. And she talked about her book and and also how she kind of came about the thing that made her ideas go viral was the graphic, the donut uh, economics graphic. And so that's a good uh, good point for how we create this narrative to change things. Excellent. Thank you for those. And also, I noticed on your website, you've got a, a recommended reading page, which has quite a few more. As far as like sort of seminal pillar books, I would imagine Spaceship Earth would be one of them. What would be some of the other classics? Would I mean, like Donella Meadows, or what would you recommend for like the core, the core sort of foundation for stuff that's been around for a while?
2: I would Google Donella Meadows to those of us who you her. Dana Meadows. Her landmark book, Limits to Growth, I would not read. It's <laughs> very, very old and somewhat gloomy. If you really want to read one of her books, that her book Beyond the Limits is what a twenty-year update to Limits to Growth, which was written in nineteen seventy-two. Uh, Beyond the Limits was, I think, ninety-two. But her shorter writings, which are on the uh, the website that grew out of her Sustainability Institute, and if you just Google Dana Meadows' writings, you'll get to it, are much better. She realized that journalism, in the sense of short articles and human-centered articles, were a much better way of communicating than writing these big technical tomes that a few people read, although millions of people read Limits to Growth. But any of her short writings are are just brilliant. E.F. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful, and then A Guide for the Perplexed is one of the classics. Lester Brown's books, all the way back to 29th Day, his more recent books, Full Planet Empty Plates, or his Plan B 4.0 books are very good reading for those who want to learn to talk about this stuff. There's a book by Jonah Sachs called winning the story wars about how you communicate complicated ideas like this.
1: I think that's a really important thing for actually most anybody who cares about this, even if it's just empowering themselves to talk about it when they speak with their friends. So that that's excellent. And how to, reform this narrative in a way that's that is understandable because you can you can get into technical speak or sort of regenerative jargon where the eyes glaze over quickly if you don't if you don't communicate well so you've got you've got the we all organization that's sort of working on the antidote to the to the mount Pellerin society right so people can get involved there are you going to have continuing resources and suggestions there as things to read and ways to get involved?
2: We will indeed. The website is just under production, wellbeingeconomy.org.
1: Well, thanks for taking the time today. It's been uh, illuminating and educating. And um, as we wrap up here, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners?
2: The future is entirely our choice. We are accustomed to thinking of the future as something that gets imposed upon us. And if we hold that view, we will get to be right, and we won't like it. If we choose to become a part of creating a finer future, we can also get to be right, and we'll like it a lot better.
1: Thank you so much for your time, and look forward to following up with you uh, as things develop, and and your new projects are taking more uh, wind in their wings, and very much look forward to reading A Finer Future once it comes out. So thank you again
0: for your time.
2: My pleasure an honor to be with you.
0: And that was Hunter Lovins. Find out more about her at natcapsolutions.org and her book from New Society Publishers at newsociety.com. With a history as diverse and engaged as Hunter's has been, there's a lot to take away from this conversation, which you'll see when you look over the recommended reading list and resources section for this episode. Stepping away from this, Though David would probably be most interested in the Bard MBA program or regenerative investing due to his exploration of the intersection of permaculture and business, I'm left turning over that simple idea of dot, do one thing. To take our passion and make a choice to live differently, model that change for others, and then begin talking and organizing around what can lead to a more beautiful future. From my own experience, this isn't fast, but we can build long-lasting relationships and deep habits that make a difference in our own lives and show others that they can change theirs as well. What do you think of this conversation with Hunter Lovins? Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch with David and I. Email show at permaculturepodcast Call 717-827-6266 or write The Permaculture Podcast P.O. Box 16 Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.